the love of this world? Should we be trying to get along in this world? No, we should be sandpaper. Sandpaper, y'all. Like, literally, that's the problem. And this is kind of what I'm going to share. It's not even in my notes today, but the more I prayed about it, just something God's been putting on my heart and showing me here lately, not anything that it's overly expounding, but it's, we have tried as the church for so long to play nice to get people to come in with good intentions. Understand that. Most of the time, what we would consider a watered-down gospel, a seeker-sensitive, something to just kind of sweeten the message a little bit so that people will come in here, have really good intentions. They're trying to do right. They're trying to reach the lost. They just think by maybe if we just kind of look away from this stuff. If we don't talk about sin, if we don't talk about death, if we don't talk about hell, but we talk about a greater experience on this earth as a result of having God in our life, then maybe people will come, and then maybe they will give their life to Christ, and then eventually we can talk about this other stuff. The plan has failed miserably. But understand something, that the majority of those people had the best of intentions. They should be given grace for that. Many of you were a part of a ministry that perhaps was like that. I myself ran a ministry that was very similar in nature. Do you know why? Because this is what I saw. And because I was thinking carnally and not spiritually, I began to look at these other ministries that were doing such things and seeing positive results. What are those results? There were more people coming. Financially, they were strong. And they seem to be baptizing a lot of people. Those are all positive metrics, right? Yes, they are. But are they spiritual ones? No, they're not. You see, that's the problem. What I could see in the moment, it's like this is the way. And I fought for that tooth and nail until I got into a ministry that was centered around that and I saw what an abysmal failure it was of creating disciples. People who were discipling others. Complete failure. And if you'd have told me that prior to then, I'd have called you a liar. There's no way. You see, what happens is, instead of being sandpaper, we are just trying to be this soft, silky, smooth feeling. There's a term that you've heard me use. I didn't coin it. It's not my term. That when I interact with somebody, I always want to have a conversation of which I leave a rock in their shoe. Okay? And what I mean by that and what is meant by this statement is that not every conversation leads to a presentation of the gospel. Some do. Not everyone does. Not every conversation that leads to the presentation of the gospel is received with open arms. In fact, the majority are not. You need to be okay with that. But I want to leave them something to think about. Like when you're walking down the road and there's a rock in your shoe. Now, it's a small rock, okay? We're not talking about two-inch gravel. We're talking the smallest of pebble, stupid thing in your shoe. And every step you take, you think of it until finally the moment you've got to stop, take off the shoe, and address the rock. That's what we want. We want to give them something to think about. Believer and unbeliever. You know, we've been in ministry for 20 years, okay? And if you count all the time I served growing up, it's been longer than that. And I've seen good and I've seen bad and I've always seen good intentions and I've seen a lot of bad results. But here is the, the crux of everything. Are we consistent in our approach? 
You see, in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, this is talking about John the Baptist. It says, the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the desert till the day of the manifestation of Israel. So the child grew. John the Baptist did not, was not born coming out of his mother's womb and said, do you know who I am? I'm the man in the wilderness. I'm going to eat some weird food. I'm going to wear some weird clothes. But I'm the guy that's going to introduce Messiah to Israel. No. He didn't wake up one day and have that revelation. He grew and became strong in the Spirit. The Lord continued to grow him. Well, what about Jesus? After finding him sitting in the temple in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, it says, they went, uh, Then he went down with them to came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Why does he need to grow in favor with God if he is God? It's because while he was here, he wasn't taking on his Godship. See, this is what we have to understand. These are just two examples. We talked about Samuel. There are many other. But the thing that we have to understand is that when Jesus was here, he grew up like everybody else. Could you imagine his siblings? You think they ever fought over the last cookie? There's a chance. We don't know. Did they fight over toys or who's going to take out the trash? I mean, they were normal kids, likely. But we always think that he just kind of flowed. That's Jesus. I can't do it. Everything he did was for an example for us to live by. Now, let me show you this. This isn't in my notes. I don't have this up on the screen. But as I was praying over the last several weeks, and, and, and more so this last week, it's like, God, where are we at as a church? And I mean a church, big C, not, not, not grace, okay? We are simply a part of the body. We are a collection of people coming together as the body of Christ, united in heart, united in purpose, that desire to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God, to understand how to rightly divide it so that we can be useful in the kingdom and to walk in the fullness of the Spirit of God, that these signs will follow them that believe. And we are the them that believe, and thus those signs should be following as we give presentations of the gospel. And you know what the key component is missing there? The presentation of the gospel. Because we have adopted this idea that to preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. We've adopted a lot of bad ideas that God works in mysterious ways. That we're going to pray and we're going to hope that God will do something. But we don't know what he's going to do. We can only hope. In Revelation chapter 2, this is the seven letters of the seven churches. I'm going to start in verse 18. This is the church of Thyatira. And I taught through the book of Revelation a couple of years ago. It says, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira, remember, angel is just a messenger. God did not need John to write a letter to a bunch of angels. Understand that. It's just translated messenger. This is very likely the pastor of the church of Thyatira, just so you know. These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works. I love your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allowed that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her se sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest of Thyatira, as many do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast 
what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nation, that he shall rule with them uh, with a rod of iron, and he shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church of Thyatira was a church of corruption. A compromised church who has laid aside the, re- the reality that Jesus had laid out and had accepted something else. They've introduced this new thing. They says that you have allowed her to teach and to preach. And the problem wasn't that she was a woman. The problem was is what she was teaching, preaching, and doing. They have taken in this idea that this sexual immorality, this is just who I am, this is just what I do. And others began to embrace this inside of the church. And Jesus said, I got a problem with you. Do you imagine if Jesus was from New York? Right? He'd open up the trunk of his car. You in. Right? It's a joke. That's not serious. All right? I mean, when you think about that, this is, there's seven churches specifically addressed. Did you realize this? Okay, ready for this? There were more than seven churches. But each one of these churches was specifically addressed. If I get a letter from Jesus, I don't want it to have a part in it. Here's my problem with you. You guys ever watch Seinfeld? Festivus, the airing of grievances. Let me tell you all the things you did that irritated me for the last 12 months. Right? I don't want that. I don't know why I threw in a Seinfeld reference. I couldn't help myself. You see, guys, this is a corrupted church. You later get to the Laodicean church, which is a church of just kind of like whatever. But look at what it says here. That you have allowed her. She calls herself a prophetess. Which means what? She's not a prophetess. She calls herself one. Do you realize that spiritual gifts, ministry gifts, are not titles that you take on upon yourself? That woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce. She has an impure motive. My servants to commit sexual immorality, to eat things, sacrifice to idols. You see... That has crept into the church. It's a corrupted church. When we talk about the Antichrist, and I've said this before, but I think everybody understands this. This isn't against Christ. It is a pseudo-Christ. One that perhaps looks like a Savior, looks like Jesus, perhaps even sounds like Jesus, but this is not Jesus. How do you know the difference? How does one know the difference between the real and the fake. Let's put this in terms that we can understand. You ever bought like something, like there's a patented item. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But it's very specific. And then you go online because you find one cheaper and you order it and it doesn't look, it looks close, but it's definitely not the same. I think there's some website out there that's like, that's all they do. What? Wish, that's the one. Yeah, like you order, I got this new cell phone, and you come in and it's like, it's just the front and there's no back on it or something like that. It looks nothing like the reality. You see, if there is no standard, you have nothing to apply it to in order to determine if this is real or if this is false. What is a born-again, spirit-filled believer's standard to anything dealing with God and the move of the Holy Spirit? It's always Scripture. It's all we have. 
If it is experience, then it is your experience versus my experience. But there must be a standard. This church had gotten away from this standard. And as you begin to study the history on these different churches, there's always reasons for that. And it's almost always a cultural one. It is because there was so much pressure from either those outside the church and even worse, those inside the church. You see, that is a part of the problem we have. If we have no standard and no focus on the reality of God, then anything goes. And you guys are seeing this today. More so than ever because of social media and the things that we have online. You think about it, this is not new stuff that is coming out, y'all. There is something called Marcionism that I don't want to get into today, but it has been around since the second century. And all they do is repackage it and call it something new. Like they came up with this brilliant idea. That guy was labeled a heretic like almost 2,000 years ago. But because of social media and the internet and the prevalence of all of this interaction that we have now, we just see it more frequently. And it's heartbreaking. I'm watching pastors walking away from the faith, deconstructing. You know why they're deconstructing? Because they were never properly constructed to begin with. You can't deconstruct truth. You can deconstruct what you believed to be truth. You see, this is where it comes down. This is where we are. If you look over at Isaiah chapter 5, flip over there real quick. This is one more I want to show you. Isaiah chapter 5. You're actually going to have to open your Bible for just a little bit. Then I'm going to get right back on track, and I got them all up on the screen for you. And I wasn't planning on doing this, but this morning as we were in worship, the Lord just kind of told me to talk. And you know I never got a problem with that. Let me find it. I'm going to start in verse 8, but that's not where we're going. You don't understand something. This is a uh, God speaking to, to Isaiah. It's about impending judgment that's coming on to the nation of Israel. Verse 8 of chapter 5 of Isaiah says, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field. They're Till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly, many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute, the wine and wine are in their feasts. But they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. And I want to stop for one second. Do you guys realize when it says, woe to whomever, it is never good. We don't think of it as that big a deal. It's a big deal, okay? So if you see woe, no good. Verse 13, therefore my people have gone into captivity. Because they have no knowledge, their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened his mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lamb shall feed in their pasture, in the waste place the fat ones, uh, strangers, shall eat." Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if a, with, a cart of, uh, with a cart rope. That say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And we could go on, woe to men mighty at drinking wine, woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. This goes on and on and on. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. In other words, if you're looking at a standard of what good and evil is, who determines that? It's not you. And it is not me. We do not get to apply our own metrics and our own standards and say, yep, that's good. Nope, that's bad. It is only God who does that. What God calls sin, we must too. What God calls good, we must too. Do you realize that God's judgment is good? It's good. It's holy. It's righteous. We don't like to hear that. We only want to hear about the flowery Jesus. The one of which loves everybody unconditionally that's not true do you realize that if jesus loved people unconditionally that his death would not have been necessary but it was because of his love that he died because there are conditions associated with righteousness those conditions have been met by god himself on our behalf we have got to stop using words that the world uses and putting christian spins on them we have to stay with the standard that God has set out there. It is all coming back to Scripture. As Jesus grew in His understanding of who He was and the will of His Father, He grew in His understanding of how God worked. He grew in His, uh, his understanding of the authority that was given to Him. How did He grow in that? He grew in it in the study of Scripture. He knew the Scriptures. He studied them from a young man. That is why they were so impressed as he was sitting in the temple. The questions he was asking, wise beyond his years, from a family of nothing, from a place of nothing, and yet he knew. Why do we think we get to do something different? Why do we think we get to pave a new road to salvation? Let's just widen that baby a little bit so that way more people get in. God will never force somebody into his heaven against their will. You see, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You see, there is a law of sin and death that you and I, if we are born again, have been freed from. There's no condemnation for us. The only way that somebody who is born again should ever feel condemned is if you're viewing yourself from outside of the righteousness that you have, from outside of your union with Christ. I want you to get that. You see, we tend to look in the mirror. And when we compare ourselves, we don't compare ourselves to God's standard. We compare ourselves to the people around us. Some people are smarter. Some people are funnier. Some people can sing. Some people cannot and should not sing. Some people are more athletic. Some people are more successful. But that's not what we compare us to. We compare ourselves to God. And what you see here will never measure up. But what God has created in me has already met the standard. It cannot do anything else. And that's the reality that we live in. 
That is the standard of by how we walk. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Did you catch the key words in there? I kind of emphasize them a little bit to try to help out. It's the if, which implies you may not be. But if you are, you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. If you are, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not His. But if Christ is in you, this body is dead because of sin. It's going to die. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to stop it. But the Spirit is life because of His righteousness. What He did. You must see yourself as you have been created. It's not what you see in the mirror. It's what you don't see. Those invisible things. Invisible attributes. Those are the things. That is why a young man such as as David could walk in so boldly up against Goliath. It's because it wasn't his flesh that he was looking at. Obviously, a young boy against a 9-foot, 13-foot, however tall he was, man, okay, doesn't have a prayer. That may be the wrong term to use in this situation. (laughs) On this earth, he doesn't have a chance. There's nothing he's going to do. But he didn't care about that. He knew that this guy is coming against the nation of Israel. And David knew that God has his hand on the nation of Israel. And if nobody else will step up to walk in the fullness of what God has, then I will. And Saul was chicken enough to let him try. With some caveats. Put on my armor. What was he thinking? Spiritually or carnally? Thinking carnally, you got to put this on. It's the only chance you have. This ain't going to work. He stepped up there in boldness. You see, he wasn't looking at the flesh. He knew God's promises. How do we look? As much as we say we look at God's promises, we're not acting like it. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he, who is he? Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, what does it mean to be sanctified? Is now we are changing this outside body, the way we talk, the way we act, is becoming more and more in union with our spirit man who is perfected. He, through his offering, perfected. Is there anything better than perfect? No. How long does it last? Forever. Those who are being sanctified. You notice it says, perfected and not is perfecting that means it's already been done you see our faith our trust our hope is not based on your feeling it's based on what you know and there are a couple things that we have to understand there will always be things that are bigger than you there will always be obstacles that we are going to face there are going to be more than what we can handle more than what we can do but if we lean on what we know and not on our own understanding then we'll be okay look at hebrews chapter 12 verse 22 it says, but you have come to Mount Zion, 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The spirits of who? Just men made perfect? Who's he talking about here? The only way one is just is coming from the just giver. We are made in the image of God. We have been justified by him. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Now let's break this down, because this has been misused many, many times. Beware. That's a good warning sign. Paul's telling the church of Colossae, hey, watch out lest anybody cheat you. That means they're going to try. How are they going to do it? Through philosophy and empty deceit. Promises that can't be met. Okay? Does that mean philosophy is bad? No. What are they according to? The tradition of men. Do we have traditions in the church today? Absolutely. We have, and are all of them of God? No. Are all of them bad? No. But if they are keeping you from God, that's a problem. And then according to what? The basic principles of the world. So we see this, philosophy, empty deceit, traditions of men, and the basic principles of the world. These are what you are to be aware of because people are trying to cheat you by this. And what's that compared to? And not according to Christ. He's over here. You see, again, we have a church that's trying to embrace everything. Because we have no standard anymore. Scripture is no longer our standard. In Him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in Him. So if you're in Him, what are you? Complete. So why do you compare yourself to everybody else? I see it all the time. People are like, I'm no longer going to live my life for somebody else or what they say or what they think. And I'm sitting there like, why'd you start in the first place? Christ is our standard. Live your life for Him. Don't worry what anybody else thinks about you as long as you're living for Him. That's all that matters. Do you realize, and this may come as a shocker, not everybody loved Jesus. They didn't embrace Him. And not everybody liked His disciples. It's crazy, I know. And yet we really truly believe that we need to get everybody to like us. We used to do something where I would train sales guys, okay? And let's just as an example, is it took you 10 opportunities before you made one sale. You had to make 10 presentations of whatever you were selling. So we would do sales with insurance, real estate, I mean anything, even vacuum cleaner guys. I'm sorry, okay, if any of them came to your door. But what we would do to spin it so they would get this mindset. Let's say at that 10th one, they make $1,000 on that sale, Okay? So it takes nine no's to get one yes. Ready? So what do we do? We broke it down. And we would say, do you realize your consistency is what matters? 
And for every no you get, you should say thank you because you just put $100 in my pocket. What are we doing? We're flipping it on its head. So you're not emotional about it and all of that kind of stuff. You're like, no, no, no. Because we know that 10th one, that's the magic one. We've got to get those nine no's first. Go get your no's while we train them. And you know what? It worked. You know why? It's for simpletons. It's stupid. It's so stupid, but it worked. Like, we'd see sales go up 30 40% sometimes in these organizations, all because of just reframing the way we think. You see, you are complete in Him. Why? Because of what He's done. And He said it. Not I said it. Not Yoli says it. Not anybody else says it. It's because He said it. How do we know that? He says it in His Word. Did He appear to me and one say, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. You have nothing to worry about. No, he's never appeared to me. Not ever. Not one time. He doesn't come to my house every day and drink coffee with me. That doesn't happen. I know it because I know what Scripture says. And he is the head of all principality and power. If he's the head and everything else is below him, what should we fear? Nothing. What do we fear? A whole bunch. Now look at Romans chapter 6. You are as Christ was on this earth. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death that he died, we're talking about Jesus, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let's go, break it down. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. Does anybody else have to die as a regard to sin? No. Do you need to? No. Are there animals that need to? No. There is none. He died once and for all. There is no longer a sacrifice that is required. Atonement has been made to whoever receives it. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise. Do you know what likewise means? It means just like he did, you do. Now, why would Paul write that? Because Jesus is up here. We can't be like him. He was the Son of God. Why do you use that word? Just like He did. Do you guys realize what we've accepted is a watered-down truth? Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. We are dead to it. It no longer controls us, rules that we will not embrace it. We will not celebrate it. We will repent of it. But alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, Just like Jesus did, so do we. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Just as Christ. Another comparison of how you live to how he lived. You see that? Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we, we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Now this one gets me. As he is, so are we in this world. Love has been perfected among us in this. What is the this? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Is there a day of judgment coming? Absolutely. 
Should we have boldness? Absolutely. Why is that? Because we who are born again have accepted His death, burial, and resurrection, that free gift on our behalf can stand boldly knowing that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. If we aren't that, can we stand boldly in the day of judgment? No. But what do we hear in this world today? You can't judge me. Only God can. It should light something in you. Be like, He's going to. That's why I'm telling you now. Because at that point, it's too late. You see, we want to embrace everything. We want to water down. We want to soften our approach. We need to get back to being sandpaper. As He is, so are we in this world. Is there any confusion about that passage? Is there anything that we should expect less than that? Is the things that He said things we should be saying? Is the things that He did things that we should be doing? Are the miracles that He performed miracles we should be performing? Absolutely. As He is, so are we in this world. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him. The body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. And as He is, so are we in this world. Death does not have dominion over us. Take our bodies. You can have it. This thing, I mean, you talk about gas prices. Do you know how much fuel i got to put in this thing? Keep this thing going? I got kicked out of a golden crown once. That's not true. It would be funny, though. Look at verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. And likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You need to understand something. Christianity isn't about doing. It's about being. It's who you are. Because of who you are, it affects what you do. It affects what you say. But you can do good things and you can say the right things. It's about being. It's about who we are. Let me give you guys an example of this. And we're going to flip over to Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to talk about the term binding and loosing. I want to be very specific here. Because there's been a misunderstanding of this uh, very often. We're going to start in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, And blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, you've got to understand something here. And I've talked about this before. Caesarea Philippi. It is distinct. It is a pagan territory. And where they're set up is near a grotto that was devoted to the, the Greek deity of Pan. But Herod also had a temple there for Caesar worship. And so as they enter into this region, he begins to grill his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? So they answer, well, some say this and some say that. 
Is that still true today? Some say Jesus embraces everything. Some say Jesus' love covers a multitude. Some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? Did Peter's confession change who Jesus was? Nope. It was a confirmation in Peter's mind of who Jesus was. You see, the change in his heart, the recognition of Messiah changed what he said. Made a difference. Verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's death, the gates of hell, as some say. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. And this, then he commanded his disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was Jesus the Christ. Now the gates of Hades is the realm of the dead. It's the realm of the power of death. And what he is saying, that death would not silence his church. Why? Because we're not going to be bound by death. But he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now you got to understand, put this in a first century Jewish context. The keeper of the keys was one of the most important roles of a servant. It implied authority. There was nothing higher than that of a servant to have the keys of the house. It means that you were trusted. You could unlock any door that you wished as long as it met the will of the owner of the house. But you were trusted that you would only keep and open and do as he willed you to. Anybody could come in. Anybody could go out. You had the discretion. And a high official... The keys would have in a royal kingdom, it would be even greater. And in God's house, you'd have the temples. And the keys here refer to the authority to open the door to the kingdom of heaven based on the knowledge of the truth that Jesus was teaching. In other words, you have the keys to the kingdom. Later on, it says that you have the power to forgive or to hold sins against them. Okay? So, we see here, and he goes on and says, whatever you bond on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'll explain that here in a moment, because I'm going to show you an interpretation of this. But this was a normal staying that was used by Jewish people, as well as Roman authorities, okay? Look at Matthew chapter 18. We're going to watch this put into practice. Moreover, verse 15, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you and you have gained your brother, but if not, he, if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now this is pretty heavy stuff. We are two chapters later. So he tells Peter that you were not revealed that who I am by man, but you have been revealed this by God. I have now given you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind will be bound, and what you loose will be loosed. In other words, what you say go, because the keys belong to you. I have given you the authority on this earth, and the gates of death will not prevail against me. Now, as we go forward, you need to understand this. He's talking about what we would consider church discipline here. This is judgment. If your brother sins against you, what are you supposed to do? You go and tell him. You confront them. And if they hear you, in other words, they listen and they repent, essentially, then you have gained your brother. But what happens if they don't? You go and get two more, one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. We'll come back to that. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. In other words, bring it in front of everybody. 
And if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What was a Jewish person supposed to do with a heathen and a tax collector? Stay away. Is that how the church operates today? Not even a little bit. So what is this binding and loosing? This was legal terms. These were terms that were used to ratify decrees that were given. So a Jewish high court would give this, a Roman high court would give this. And when they would bind something, they would enact it. That this is now how it is going to be. It is bound. If something was loosed, it was the complete opposite. It was freedom. You can go. You are allowed. Whatever. Okay? This is binding and loosing as the term that he was given. In other words, Peter, I'm giving you the keys in the kingdom. What you bind is bound in heaven. What you loose is loose in heaven. Does this sound like spiritual warfare so far, what we've read? No. No. It's not. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. We talked about the mouth of two or three witnesses. This is where it comes from. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. You've got to understand something. The mouth of two or three witnesses. In other words, if you were going to bring a charge against somebody, your word by itself was not enough. It had to have a minimum of two or three. Two or three witnesses. In other words, if you walked in and you saw a murder take place and you caught them holding the knife in, your ha- in their hand, you got them dead to right, that was not enough to bring a charge against them. You had to have two or three witnesses. Now, you'll hear people say this, that the Lord may reveal something to them or say, all right, Lord, I've got to have two or three witnesses. Is that the same thing? The answer is yes, and here's why. What is Scripture? It's the eyewitness testimony of things writing down. So is it two or three witnesses? Yes. These other people have confirmed what the Lord has revealed to me. Do you see how that works? So we want to be careful. We want to rightly divide. So this is what's going on. The rabbis took this principle so serious. So serious. So we're dealing with church discipline. Okay? Verse 18. Assuredly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Is this the same term that he used in chapter 16? Yep. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Do you guys hear all the verses we have lifted out of context that have been misused for many years? Let me explain what's going on. We're dealing with church discipline. We're bringing a charge against somebody. You confront your brother. If he doesn't hear you, you bring two or three more. They introduce Deuteronomy 19. A good Jewish man would know that. If they won't listen to that, you bring them before the church. And if they won't listen to that, you cut them out. Okay? He's telling them, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. In other words, what you do in this moment in dealing with this is bound up here. And what you allow, what you loose, is loosed up here. Because you have the authority. And if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. In other words, what? Two or three people together. This wasn't a unilateral thing. I decree on behalf of all the church. This was something that they had to do together. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We've always used this, and we pray this, Lord, we know where two or three are gathered, you are there. Which implies what? If you're by yourself, he's not. And perhaps if there's four or more, unfortunately, that's too many. God can't be there with you. No, he is referencing Deuteronomy 19. There's a certain order that was going to be done here. 
the Jewish high court acted on the authority of God's tribunal. And basically, what they were to do was to judge cases on the basis of God's law accurately. Binding and loosing was legal terms that were regularly used by rabbis, legislating authority, and the interpreting of Scripture. So this is not... I mean, think about it. How many guys have heard this? Well, I bind Satan in the name of Jesus. Who unbinds him? Because he seems to still be running around. And what if some jacknut said, I loose Satan. Is he loosed and running around in heaven? Their heart is in the right place. This is the wrong passage. We rebuke the enemy in the name of Jesus. Again, we want to keep things in context, but what's happening here is we have carnal thinking. We have carnal thinking in the sense that what does the church do today? Well, we just need to embrace. We just need to love. And we just need to pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal to them. You see, when we have options, our options are obstacles. But absolutes will give you boldness. Think about it today. We talk about this all the time. In the United States, do you have to be faithful with your giving and financially prudent? The answer is no. Because we have options here. That if ends aren't being met, is there a government system that's going to step into the, the fold? Absolutely. You have options. We've seen it with these big businesses that act like idiots and, and spend their money like drunken sailors home for the weekend. And what happens? They're too big to fail. The government steps in and bails them out. We see this happen all the time. Does that mean that they have to be a good steward with what they have? Nope, because they have options. If you eliminate all of that and only the strong survive, what happens? You change the way that we act. When it comes to the area of healing, do we have options in this country? Absolutely. You get a headache, what do you got? Tylenol, aspirin, Aleve, whatever. If you don't have it at home, what can you do? Drive, pick it up, any point in time. We're experiencing shortages for the first time in most of our life. Do you realize how hard it was to find oyster crackers in January? That's not the will of God. Oyster crackers. Do you remember the great toilet paper shortage? Who would have guessed? This is America. We don't use leaves. I mean, guys, think about this. We have so many options that we do not have to depend on God for our finances, didn't depend on God for our necessities, because why? There are options, and these options are obstacles for that to keep us from walking in the fullness of God. You go to other parts of the world, and they are seeing miraculous things happen everywhere. Why is that? They have no other options. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Starting in verse 16, it says, Now behold, one who came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? I want to show you this in practice here. So he said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, isn't that interesting? You guys have heard me say that God is the standard of good and everything else must meet up to that. Who said that first? Obviously, I'm not that profound. Jesus said it. Wait a minute. Jesus on this earth has a man that says good, uh, calls him good teacher. He's like, why do you call me good? No one is good except the one that is God. Jesus said that. Why? Because as he is, so are we on this earth. 
But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said, well, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you should not murder or commit adultery or steal or bear false witness on your father and mother. You should love all your neighbor as yourself. And if you think that's an all-inclusive list, it is not, okay? Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. All right, now think about this. So he's rich. Got a lot of stuff. What am I lacking here? Okay, good. Go get rid of all your stuff. Give all your money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Look what he says. But when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful. He had for he had great possession. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the, kingdom, uh, enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say for you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, what are we referencing here? The subject is salvation. And how does one get there? So what do we learn at that last verse, verse 26? With men, salvation is not possible. In other words, there's nothing you can do. There's no amount of money you can give. There's no goodness that you can, you can enact. But with God, all things are possible. See, they're, they're shocked because, well, who can be saved? If he can't be saved, who can be? Why was this so heartbreaking for this man? Because he had options. And these options were the obstacles. Now, how would the church respond to this today? Rich man comes in and says, okay, good, sell all you have. See, these were keeping him from following Jesus because Jesus said, okay, good, get rid of everything, come be my disciple. Did everybody else have to do that? Yeah, they did. Actually, think about it. Didn't they leave behind what they had? Let your dead bury your dead? Come and follow me? Absolutely. They all left behind whatever they had. But here he's saying, okay, go get rid of everything because it's holding you back. And then you come and follow me. He's like, but I got a lot of stuff. And if that happens at the church today, what do we do? Okay, okay, you don't have to give it all today. But over time, little by little, as you're comfortable, as you're led by the Spirit, get rid of those things. And then slowly you can... That's not what Jesus did. He let the guy walk away. Let him walk away. And then he says, look at verse 20. Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because he's not fully dependent upon Christ to meet his needs, both on this earth and spiritually. See, that's the thing. Why is it hard? They have options. Is it true that when, uh, uh, when, when economies go down, that the rich are the ones that usually survive them better? Why? Because they have a fallback. They have options. They're not the ones figuring out, how am I going to put gas in my car? How am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to keep the lights turned on? How am I going to buy groceries? The poor don't have the options that the rich have. But because they have it, they're not worried. But look what he says here. This is often misused. I want to show you this. Again, I say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this has been misunderstood because you're thinking camel and you're thinking needle. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that that is not going to, that's not going to happen. But that's not what it's talking about. Let me show you the eye of the needle. You see that little doorway there? That would be a doorway into a, a city or to a village or to a, a kingdom. And as they would go in there, the camels were always packed with all sorts of things. Everything necessary for them to travel, for the people that were with them. 
Is a camel going to fit through that door? Yeah, he can. You know how he does it? You've got to strip everything off of him. He's got to get down on his knees, and he's got to crawl through that door. Because they wouldn't open that big door at night. That's where the bad guys come in. So what is he insinuating? All of the stuff from this world has to be removed if you want to enter in the kingdom of heaven. What does the church today do? We make that door much bigger. We don't control the door. We don't build the road. The door's been built. The road's been built. We simply point to the path. As he was, as he is, so were we in this world. We cannot be a church of compromise. We cannot be a church that looks like this world and celebrates what this world celebrates. There can be no backing down from truth. We must stay with the standard that God has given. We don't have a choice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, Lord, and we thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. And Lord, I just pray that each heart here is and open to your truth, to your reality. That we don't live our own truth. Lord, we live in the reality that you've given us, that we are made whole, made right because of what you have done. And may we walk in the fullness of that on this earth. Lord, I pray that you give us boldness to stand up and be an example in this world, that the world will see us and see something unique and see something different, and that we will point them in the right direction, not just through the things that we do, but most importantly, Lord, by the words that we say, that we will be your hands and feet on this earth, that we will not walk timidly, but Lord, we will be bold, that when we see those who are sick, that we will lay hands on them. We see those who are hurting, we will reach out to them. Lord, that we will be on mission for you every single day to our friends, neighbors, family, co-workers, Lord, not waiting for you to shine a light from heaven upon somebody, but we are always at work for you. And that those keys have been given to us, Lord. And that we know what to do with them because of your work. And so, Lord, I thank you for all things, and I thank you that you are empowering us and emboldening us to walk in the fullness that you have created us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. See you Sunday.